Welcome to the Stott Legacy. He is within us. He shares in the pay. We must not ask God to change his timetable because we're getting a little bit impatient. Well, think of the beginning of the first letter of Peter. John Stott was born on 27th of April, 1921. And in this, the centenary year of his birth, we're meeting different people around the world who either knew him or who were influenced by him. Please join me, Mark Mannell, as month by month we explore different aspects of the extraordinary life, ministry and legacy of Uncle John. What Stott positively encouraged us to do was to go for the most difficult, challenging uh, experiences, threats, ideas and engage with them because it's precisely in those areas that you will see the power of Christian truth. That was the voice of Professor John Wyatt, who we met in episode 21. And that was the first half of our uh, fascinating conversation, which we continue now. Now, John, as will have been clear before, is a man of many parts, a professor and a paediatrician, and writer and thinker about challenging ethical issues. As our conversation continued, I was keen to find out more about his involvement with the last two chapters of Uncle John's last book, The Radical Disciple. Let's dial forward to his last book, Radical Disciple. And I remember reading that and, and um, <clears throat> most of it is stuff you could find elsewhere in his books distilled it was you know like it felt a bit like drawing all kinds of threads together um and I remember thinking you know it's quite something in your 80s to write a book about being radical but that that you know that that was him but then you have the last two chapters about dependence and preparing for death now I think did you have a hand in suggesting that because I remember reading those and thinking wow this feels very different yes I I think I think I probably did. I had been through catastrophic experience of a, of a major psychiatric breakdown uh, in my fifties as, as, as the sort of, as I'd become you know, quite a senior doctor. I was a senior consultant, I was a professor. And then I had a, a catastrophic uh, psychotic breakdown. Uh, I've had two episodes and in the second mm. episode, I was in a locked psychiatric ward and and I felt utterly destroyed and 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 um, catastrophic, and, and I felt there was no future for me. I would never again have any professional work. I would never again have any Christian ministry. And um, and I remember he tracked me down in this locked psychiatric ward and phoned me up. Wow. I can remember his voice on the phone saying, "I value your friendship, John," and it was just extraordinary and brought tears to my eyes. And so. You know, we talked a lot about that afterwards as I slowly recovered and about my own experiences. I think he was quite shocked and somebody else told me he was very, very uh, pained by, by my illness and, and, and breakdown. And, but then he too went through a sort of very major life experience. He fell over and fractured his femur in his little flat yeah. So I was on staff by that time. I remember, remember yeah. it happening. He was becoming increasingly frail. And by God's grace, we'd managed to persuade him to have this emergency buzzer. I'd become a kind of informal physician uh, to, mm. to him, which, which was 
which is very amusing because I, of course, I was a baby doctor, and, and and we used to tease one another. He he would say, he would ask me some deeply personal medical question, and I don't, I just wonder what what, what your advice would be, and I would say something like, "Well, what do I know? I'm a baby doctor. I'm very good on nappy rash," and he would say, <laughs> "Well, well, I hope it hasn't come to that yet." <laughs> <laughs> but he, he he had this um, severe injury he was admitted to the local hospital which was actually my hospital and um i spent many hours with him again it was just a privilege to be there at the bedside as he went through surgery and was recovering and and he went through a period of confusion and he started hallucinating i remember him saying dear brother do you think the same thing is happening to me has happened to you <laughs> <laughs> and um you know, and we we wept together we you know, we laughed about the the petty humilities, the humiliations of mm. of hospital life and using bottles and and mm. um, and uh, and then when he came, he went off for a period of convalescence. He came back to his home, and I remember as he was, he'd been looking forward to getting back to his flat, and and he'd had this idea that once he got back to his flat, everything would be okay. He'd be go mm. back to his own life, and as we he. Can't we, we staggered up the stairs, you know, taking a stare at the time into this tiny little bachelor flat. And as we got there, he was just overwhelmed with the realization that actually he would never be able to no. live as his fault. And, and he just, he, he collapsed and wept and, and he mm. wept in my arms. And, and it was a, an extraordinary period of, of, of pain and um, and dependence and so it was really out of those experiences I think that I really did encourage him I you know if he could share some of this was he reluctant helpful he was initially not not because of the shame just mm. because you know he comes from a generation where you just didn't talk about these kind of things it was yeah. like talking about your underwear I mean you don't, yeah. you don't really, <laughs> you know. and you know it was just it's not not within that upper class yep. um, zeitgeist, but yeah. but actually he was persuaded that it was it would be mm. helpful, and 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 I did help him in terms of what I thought, mm. you know, just just to express his his feelings and 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 um, yeah, so I think it he was revealing um, part of part of that and. You know, he was experiencing what I have experienced, and that is that going through these, and you've experienced it too, Mark, and you, because you've mm. spoken about your own experiences, that actually it becomes a kind of strange gift, doesn't it? That, mm. you know, we didn't ask for these experiences, we no. didn't go there, but actually it becomes something that we have to share with others, a gift mm. that God has given us. and that It's a bridge right to other place. people, isn't it? It's a bridge, it's it's a way of of sharing and, and, um, and, and, and passing on things we've learned, things that have been, that we couldn't have learned by any other way. Mm. I mean, those two chapters are, I think, very precious and special. And I guess the thing is, they weren't, it wasn't new for him to talk about them. It was just new to make them so public, but he'd always had people he'd been open with. Absolutely right. He it, it was it, it he had practiced you know out of his humility and his desire to be faithful to christ he did have those of us who were just extraordinarily privileged to 
where he shared his his vulnerabilities. And several other people, you know, around the world have said to me how, you know, they they met him often as a young man, a young Christian leader, and here he is visiting, and they're, to their utter astonishment, he is uh, opening up to them about some of his hurts, asking people to pray for him, asking, sharing some of the wounds he's felt personally and so on. And they're utterly taken aback that this extraordinary, revered Christian leader could be so open and so so vulnerable. So it was it was his practice, but what was unusual was, was to actually put it into print. And actually one of the things I really regret is that he never put into print his practice of friendship in in any detail it, he was it's clear he was very intentional about friendship about seeking people out asking to see them you know inviting them to go bird watching with him and 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 you know he, he you was a bird clear. watcher john <laughs> well i was a sort of very amateur and low-grade bird watcher but we did yes i could talk the same language and we we did go <laughs> And had great fun actually uh, in hides somewhere. He was he was he had this very childish streak about him. He loved letting his hair down and and uh, and telling stories, ridiculous stories on his travels and and and. But also this observation. I think um, Ruth Padilla Borsch said something very interesting in one of your earlier podcasts that she thought his observational skills, the fact that he he would just sit in a hide and watch and study. Um, it was also a practice that he did uh, in the whole of his life. And I think that there's something very acute about that uh, as an acute observation that um, he, he had this ability just to watch and to, and to, and he loved God's creation. He, to see every little bit and just say, Oh, isn't that just, can you see that little, just look at those, the way those feathers light up. And isn't that, isn't that wonderful? You know? and, and it just, he just loved uh, and fed off the the beauties of, of of the creation am i right in thinking that you are now working on writing about friendship yes i'm trying to distill and and also you know trying to work out how much of all this to share in the public domain and 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 all the rest um but try to distill some of the experiences both of my friendship with him and uh, and of the other his other close friends one of his close friends, David Zach Niringaya, uh, mm. I was uh, asking him about his friendship with with John and, and what was the, the feature about it. And he said something. He said, "You know, our friendship was carved out of the heart of the gospel." Mm. And and I thought that's such a wonderful phrase, and that I'm trying to use that a kind of gospel crafted friendships, friendships that reveal what I I'm going to call the logic of the gospel, the the the, the the characteristics of the gospel and and because that's what his friendships were like and and it was utterly transformative i mean his friendship completely changed my life i've no doubt that i wouldn't have been doing a quarter of the, of the things and my preoccupations my concerns the way i was writing life, writing uh, engaging and you know uh, still trying to to practice double listening and mm. and and to pass it on to others um and a vision for lay ministry that's another thing i think that sadly has been lost a lot of this so my concern is is that when the next generation look back at start they basically think oh a nice old godly buffer who preached the bible 
Uh, and the truth is, if that's all there was about him, uh, he would certainly not have had the impact he had on me as, as on so many other people. There were lots of nice old godly buffers who preached the Bible. That wasn't what was so distinctive about him. It was actually the, this radical, challenging, questioning, mm. um, always pushing. Um, that's, that's the start that I want to celebrate and want, and that was the start that changed my life. I hope and wish that that element and, and his belief in lay people, you know, he, he, most Christian leaders seem to spend a lot of their time trying to persuade bright young things to, to follow them. That, you know, why don't you, you know, you know, I, I find, you know, you need to go to theological college, you need to get in with the church, you need to do X, Y, Z, you know, and, and, and I'd start again, just wasn't doing that. It he encouraged you to be a medic. He, he did. And, and at one stage, I was so impressed by his, you know, model as a, as a Christian leader and thinking maybe God was calling me to change. And I, I can't recall the exact conversation, but he, he listened gravely and, you know, we talked about it. And then he gently pushed back and said something like, you know, I can't help but wonder whether Christ hasn't called you into the world of medicine. And, and really what you need to do is to stay where he's put you and be a faithful witness to him in that place. And I'm just so grateful for his wisdom and, and for his belief in non-ordained, you know, and, and Christians engaged in the coalface and his desire to resource them. That's, he said, that's what the clergy are for. The clergy are there to give the resources so that the real ministry team, the real, the real ministers get on with the job. Um, to prepare God's people for works of service. Absolutely. And, and I think there's, again, it's a bit of a pity when sometimes this clericalism has crept back into yes. John Stock ministries, you know, the ministries which, which come out of his, his work. Mm. I mean, put it slightly simplistically, but, um, you know, the, the two major ministries, certainly here in the UK and then going internationally, we can see coming out of his ministries is on the one hand Langham, the Langham Partnership, and on the other hand, the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. And I think they represent his two greatest passions, his passion for uh, building up global mm -hmm. uh, Christian leadership and for engaging in the modern world. The, the problem with having them as two separate organizations is that it's almost like they're two completely unrelated activities. Whereas in John Stott's minds, they were integrally in yeah. integrated. The two were part and parcel of the Christian mission in the modern world. It strikes me that one of Stott's most important words was integrated. He sought a faith that was integrated into everyday life. He sought for mind and body and spirit to be integrated and whole. He sought for all different types of people, racially, socially, economically and temperamentally, to be integrated into the church. As a result, he was convinced that there should never be a distinction between the so-called sacred and secular. He wanted life to be integrated. He also strongly encouraged genuine dialogue, particularly with those who opposed him. So John pointed out how, in our current climate, this idea has been largely set aside. 
How often do you hear about engaging in dialogue? It seems, mm. it seems very mm. quaint and old fashioned. And yet he was passionately committed to that, um, that what we needed to do was dialogue with our opponents, dialogue with those who hated us, dialogue with, with those who, who attack us and demean us and, and seek to destroy us. And, uh, and I, I think that is right. I, and, and the tribalism which we've now got, the, the way that debates have become so polarized and coarsened and, and sound bites. Yeah. And, and how many prominent Christian leaders could we say are genuinely engaging in dialogue um, in, in the secular world, listening, trying to understand. Um, so that model um, there are many other wonderful models of the biblical preaching and so on, which is being eminently carried on. But that that model of dialogue and engagement in, in the modern world is something I fear is being underplayed, partly because it's a lot more complicated and challenging. You know, preaching from Romans, yes, is is not it's not easy, but there are very well established models and so on and how to do that. Uh, engaging in some of the most complex issues of the modern world, which is what Stott was doing before, is exceptionally challenging, difficult, and, time consuming, and, time consuming and, 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 and often confusing other and hmm. even disorientating. And, and yet that's our calling. What, what if he was around now in his prime, what do you think he would be encouraged by? Um, what would be a challenge to him. I mean, you've mentioned some of those things. I think I'm sure he would have chimed with that. But can do other things occur to you? There's sort of encouragements and challenges. I'm sure he would be deeply encouraged by how his writings are continuing to to go around the world. I have the privilege of being uh, one of the literary executors, um, which he set up before he died to have responsibility for his written works, and it it is extraordinary how you know, his books are continuing to be read and translated and reissued into new, and he would be very moved and encouraged by that. He would be moved and encouraged to see um, how his influence has penetrated across the world and mm -hmm. um, and particularly how the Langham Scholars and uh, other, <clears throat> you know, things coming directly out of his work and, and Langham preaching and so on. I, I, I think he would be deeply encouraged by that. But I, I think that he would be looking at issues like climate change, like the war in Ukraine, like the pandemic. You know, it was very noticeable how the Christian voice in the pandemic was so muted. Mm -hmm. You know, it was almost not there. You know, we just heard constantly from politicians and from medics as being the only people who had anything to say. And and he would have been deeply saddened at that and, and, and would say, how on earth could it be that Christians are not at the forefront of um, engaging in, in those kind of global issues and urgent issues? Yeah, I suppose the fact that globally we are much more interconnected now would have been something that thrilled him. I mean, we were chatting about Zoom earlier. Yes, I mean, you know, he was one of the first um, international 
Christian statesman. I mean, it was very unusual getting on a plane, you know, BOAC, British Overseas <laughs> Airways Corporation, and flying to Latin America was an extraordinary, um, unusual adventure. And, you know, and he was exposed across the world going on these trips in the 60s and 70s um, and meeting up with people like Rene Padilla and Festo Kivendri in Uganda and, and these extraordinary individuals who, who were changing him. So he really did have this vision of, of a global church. And I think he would have been blown away by our possibility of using Zoom. And I think he would be saying, why aren't we doing this more? Why aren't we having more global conversations with Christians around the world since you can do it so easily now? You know, why aren't we allowing the voices from majority world Christians to preach in our churches, to <clears throat> to bring their perspectives on on the, the issues of the day? Um, uh, why, you know, why are we so timid? in embracing this technology and using it for the glory of God. Can you summarize how John um, changed your life? You, you said that he changed your life. So how, how would you sum that up? It's so hard to know, isn't it? Because he, um, <clears throat> he, by God's grace, you know, and just through his providential overruling, I happened to be with him at, at this, at a very formative time in my life. And I'm just trying to work out you know, where I fit, what I'm called to do, and so on. I fear that if I hadn't met Stott, I would have eventually walked away from the Orthodox faith. I think I would have been increasingly feeling, you know, it's a great theory, it's wonderful, it's beautiful, but it just doesn't work. It just doesn't engage with the real world. I've always been drawn to the real world, to the world mm. of science and technology and healthcare and the real stuff that changes people's lives. And I would be saying this religious stuff, yeah, it's great, it's beautiful, but it really is just small print in terms of where the modern world is. And what Stott gave me and was this extraordinary vision and confidence, a robust confidence in the power of Christian truth, mm. that this really is the truth, that, that that Christ really is the Lord of the entire cosmos and therefore the Lord of healthcare and the Lord of science and the Lord of culture. And that this is not just some nice religious dream, it's the truth. And that has been utterly transformative in, in my thinking. And, and somebody once said of Stott that they've never met anyone who was quite so thoroughly converted. And I think that's a very profound saying, you know, that that started so allowed Christian truth and, and the Holy Spirit and, and the love of Christ to transform every aspect of his life and behavior. And I certainly felt that over the years, I, I became completely intellectually converted. Alas, there are many aspects of my <laughs> life that are not as fully converted as, as Jesus, as, as John Stott. But there's this Freud the club. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what I do think is that my mind and mm. intellectual structures were 
thoroughly converted by Christ, and I too have inherited the robust mm. confidence that Stott had, because it was one of the extraordinary things, you know, I remember once as a, again, as a, as a young Christian leader, I was trying to lead the CU in, in London, and it, it was terribly split with issues of the charismatic mm. uh, renewal at that time. And I had tried to hold it together and I felt I'd completely failed and I, and I went to him in abject misery and I'm just, you know, John, I just feel I've just, it's so, so dishonouring to Christ and, and he listened gravely and he said something to the effect of, you know, the church has survived for 2000 years. <laughs> Uh, and has maintained faithful truth. And you know, I suspect the church can even survive John Wyatt. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, yeah, he's probably. Oh, <laughs> it's a revelation. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that robust mm. confidence that whatever happens, um, the church will survive is something he breathed. It wasn't uh, arrogant, it wasn't triumphalistic, it was utterly genuine. And and I think I've inherited that uh, to, to a small extent. And I just see so many Christians who it feels like intellectually they're walking around, they're tiptoeing on the floorboards. You know, if, if you live in a house which is penetrated by dry rot or woodworm, and at one stage I did live in such a house, what you do is you don't jump up and down too heavily because you might just go through the floorboards. And I think intellectually, there are many, many Christians, including Christians in very prominent positions in in secular world, who are like that. They're tiptoeing around on the floorboards. They 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 want to believe in Christ. They want it to be true, but they're worried that if they were to jump up and down too heavily, they might go crashing through. And then where would I be? I'd lose my faith. It would be hopeless. Whereas. What Stott positively encouraged us to do was to jump up and down on the floorboards, to go for the most difficult, challenging uh, experiences, threats, ideas, and engage with them, because it's precisely in those areas that you will see the power of Christian truth. That's, that's wonderful. And I just had a fascinating thought that, in a way, you the investment that John gave you represents if you like, years of reflection and prayer and thought from those two students in Cambridge who said, you know, that's all very nice, but that's 2000 years old. What's it got to do with us? In a way, you and many others, but here, here was you as a student in London sometime after that time in Cambridge, and he was going to make sure that didn't happen to you. Yeah, yeah, that's, that, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And and he was on a journey. He was not mm. just, it wasn't that he knew the answers and that he was making sure that he passed them on. Mm. He was modeling how to do the journey. You know, how do you take something completely from left field, as I'm now trying to do with artificial intelligence or with mm. robotics or yes. with the simulacrum and virtual reality? How do you take something utterly, <laughs> utterly um, from left field? And then say, well, now, how do we re respond to this from the perspective of the Orthodox Christian faith? John, thank you so much. It's been a real treat. So for your prayers this time, because John mentioned the Langham Scholars programme, please do be praying for its ongoing work. 
pray for those in countries where there are very limited resources, that they have access to all that they need to further their studies, whether they are uh, doing so remotely or traveling every now and then uh, to places with libraries. And pray particularly that their research would be well used for years to come in the development of leaders and maturity in the church in their home territories. Give thanks for the hundreds of people so far who have come through Langham Scholars and we pray for the selection of many more to come in the years ahead. Thank you so much for listening to The Stock Legacy. Thank you also to my Langham Partnership colleagues who have helped to make this podcast a reality. And special thanks to Vic Marseille from Langham Partnership UK and Ireland for all her hard work in editing and producing each episode. Please do leave a review wherever you get your podcasts, recommend it to friends, and above all, tune in next time. Until then, goodbye.